Good to be with you, Covenant College. It is that time of year. Today, I introduced the Reformation Day lectures and the Reformation Day lecture speaker. It's going to be good. As a member of the Covenant College community, we hope that you see yourself as part of a larger story. Covenant is a Christian college, and so Covenant seeks to live faithfully before the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Mary and Paul, the God of the Desert Mothers, and the God of Bernard of Clairvaux. But also, Covenant College is a Protestant institution, unashamedly part of the Reformed tradition. And so we trace our particular lineage back not just to the past first 1,500 years of the church, but we see special significance for the Protestant Reformation. With the first reformers, we hold to the primacy of God in all things, the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, and the radical nature of the gospel of grace realized only in the unique person and work of Jesus. Reformation Day lectures, which we've been doing for a long time, are our attempt as an institution to allow continued exploration of our own history, but also with the distinct desire not simply to learn from the past and to learn about the past, but to allow that past to inform our present and future. So with this in mind, we look for special lecturers who are soaked in the Reformed tradition, but see that tradition as very living uh, and, and as, as a tradition that has something to say to us today. This brings me to our lecture this year. Dr. Suzanne McDonald is Associate Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Her biography is pretty wonderful. You're, you're, she's amazing. You're, you're just going to love her. But part of, part, of what's, part of what's amazing about her is born and raised in Australia to English parents. Then she went to uh, Britain for uh, graduate work after becoming a Christian in college. She went to study at Oxford and Cambridge and then did her PhD at St. Andrews, so she's kind of an intellectual slough, I think, you know, struggling. Very, very bright person. That led to her book on, she wrote a book on election, a stimulating creative book, raising concerns, using theologians like John Owen, but also raising cons some concerns, um, both with Owen, but also particularly with Karl Barth, which is fascinating work. She has a little book on John Knox. And one of the things I find most helpful about reading and listening to Suzanne or Dr. McDonald is she is what I would call an honest broker. I really respect that about her. She, she looks at ideas and people and tries to look for the best and critique the problematic. But let me tell you a few things that you might find more interesting. First, she's an avid bird watcher. So don't panic when you see her walking around campus with her binoculars. Secondly, this is even more interesting, she is an avid NFL fan. Her favorite teams are the Lions and the Redskins. 
Third, you should ask why in the world she hates Seahawks, Cardinals, Ravens when she's a bird watcher. <laughs> I will let you deal with that later. But more seriously, Dr. McDonald loves the church. She loves the church. She loves the local church. She loves the people of God. And you spend any time with her, it is infectious. She wrote an essay called Beholding the Glory of God in the Face of Jesus Christ. John Owen, it's got to be good. John Owen and the Reforming of the Beatific Vision. That essay was published in, a, in an academic volume called Ashgate Research Companion to the study of John Owen's theology, right? No one reads this. I want to give you a taste of why academic theology matters. You've never even heard of this book. But I guarantee there are many in this room who have read or bought and plan to read Tim Keller's book on prayer. You probably won't look at the end notes, but Keller consistently, multiple times, draws on her essay and she helps shape aspects of his understanding of prayer. And I know to our community, now you're like, okay, now I'm going to listen. <laughs> She'll be lecturing today on the resurrection. Tomorrow, I know you don't normally come on Tuesdays, please come. She's talking about the return of Jesus. We never talk about that. And then today at 4.30, she's going to be giving a version of this talk, followed by Q&A. All right, join me in welcoming Dr. McDonald. Covenant College. Woo! That's a big microphone. Uh, so, so good to be with you. A joy to be here uh, today and tomorrow. Really honoured to have been invited. Thank you so much. And warmest greetings from Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. So, yeah. Whoa! Thank you. I'll let them know. I'll give them your warmest greetings right back. Um, so over my couple of days with you, what I'm going to be doing, the link between all of the talks I'm going to be doing is speaking about aspect of reformed eschatology. The word eschatology literally means talk about the end, the last things, and it is not a hugely popular topic in reformed circles most of the time. Stayed reformed people do not tend to talk very much about end times things. And I suspect that is largely because the minute anyone mentions things like, you know, the return of Jesus or whatever, you immediately start thinking of nutjobs who public pre publicly predict you know, the date of Jesus' return or the folks who are trying to get rapture ready and who turn every single world event or natural disaster into some way of timetabling the end. Uh, more about such things tomorrow. But the thing is, because that's what so many people think eschatology is all about, even within the faith community, predicting the time of Jesus' return, uh, waiting for the rapture and so on, we Reformed folks just do not want to go there, right? We don't even want to begin to have the conversation. This is not good. Because not thinking much about eschatology, not talking much about eschatology, means that we are ignoring the trajectory of the whole biblical story and an entire dimension of the gospel that was hugely important to the New Testament writers. And, of course, we're simply leaving the field to the date-fixing nutjobs. Um, I didn't say that, did I? <clears throat> Sorry. 
Um, we also need to realize, though, that this, um, unlike the popular culture version, a reformed biblical eschatology is about so much more than the end times, simply seen as a bunch of somewhat crazy, kind of scary-sounding events uh, way off into the future. When you enter into what the whole of the Bible has to say about the future that God has in store, you begin to realize that in its fullest sense, eschatology is not simply about like death, judgment, heaven and hell. They were the traditional four last things. And it isn't even just about glorious future events like the return of Jesus. Eschatology is nothing less than the consummation of the whole Christian hope, right? The hope for the time when all of God's promises, all of God's purposes will be fulfilled for human beings, yes, but also for the whole of creation. Eschatology is that big, folks. It is that glorious. Reformed eschatology looks ahead to the time when the triune God will accomplish every single thing that in the depths of his pure holiness and love he has promised and intends for us and for the whole of creation. And here's something else. Biblical eschatology can't just be confined to the future. Eschatology is also a dimension of the gospel, a dimension of the life of faith right here, right now. Every aspect of the life of faith, every single doctrine, has an eschatological dimension to it. So, um, eschatology is not just one doctrine among many, and the last one we usually think about. Uh, eschatology runs through all of them. Say, like, take Christology, right? Thinking about the person and work of Jesus. That doesn't stop when we talk about Jesus ascended in his humanity at the right hand of the Father. It points towards the time when he will come back again in glory. And think about your own sanctification, right? The one step forward, three steps back process of fighting against sin and the Holy Spirit shaping you to be more and more like Jesus. Well, that is pointing towards the time when we will see Jesus face to face, know as we are known, and be so fully and finally transformed by the Holy Spirit that there will be no shadow of sin or evil or brokenness. Only the purest love for the triune God, right relationship with all the redeemed and the whole of God's creation. Every doctrine, every aspect of the Christian life is pointing to us towards, it's drawing us towards eschatological fulfillment. As an amazing theology prof, a mentor of mine said once, the whole of the Christian life is magnetized forwards. So, like I said, biblical eschatology cannot just be confined to the future. It's already at work right here, right now. One of the most important things to get about eschatology, and kind of one of the weirdest things about it too, is that God's coming future has already broken into the present. It is already at work. So that means as Christians, we don't just do linear time, right? If there are any Doctor Who, Doctor Who fans out there, it's a bit like a wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and as well as, uh, you know, as well as we do think in ordinary linear time, of course we do, but we also then have to say that something of God's future is already at work in the present. God has like lifted the veil a little bit. He's given us a sneak peek of what he's going to do. God is giving us tasters in advance of what is coming. He does that in many, many ways. And above all, he has done that in the resurrection of Jesus. And the centrality of that is where my talk is heading this morning. But also, like I just mentioned, don't forget, for example, everything that the Spirit is doing in your life and in others is an anticipation of the eschaton. It's the beginning of the glorious end. 
So, one way that biblical eschatology shapes our lives now is this idea that the beginning at the end is already at work. The future God will bring about it, the eschaton has already broken into our present. Not fully, of course. Sin and evil and death are still at work. They will not be fully and finally done away with until the consummation of all things. But still, God's coming future has broken into our present. To get at another way that eschatology shapes our lives now, I want to ask you a question. What do you hope for, right? What do you hope for? Now, that could be huge things to do with like world peace or missions or something, or it could also be really personal things like what you want to do after you graduate, hoping to get the time and the funding for that next big research project. Um, what your children, what you envisage your children might do. Take some time, each one of you today, to think about what do you hope for? Because guess what? If those are real hopes, right, if they deeply matter to you, then they will be hugely influencing how you live right now. What you hope for in the future shapes your choices, shapes your actions now in any number of ways. The fact that we hope for the future means that we spend a lot of our time in the present thinking about it, taking steps towards what we hope the future will look like for us. Well, guess what again? It's the same with your eschatological hopes, right? With what you think God has in mind to do at the eschaton. Whether you think about it consciously or not, what you think God is going to do in the eschatological future, what you think the Christian hope is for you, for others, for the whole of creation, that is already shaping your life and your choices now in any number of ways. Keep hold of that thought. We're going to come back to it towards the end. So, biblical eschatology is not just future stuff, it involves now too. Aspects of God's coming future have broken into the present and the resurrection of Jesus is the major example of that. And also, your hopes for the eschatological future, how you understand what God will do, will be shaping your life now, whether you realise it or not. But here's a problem. Go back to that question I asked you, what do you hope for? How do you know that what you're hoping for is real hope, right? Not a sheer fantasy or a delusion. With our personal hopes and also with our eschatological hopes. How do we know that our hope is a genuine one and not a false one? Um, to take a really silly example, and actually um, Prof Capic has really led into this one. Uh, as you have heard, I've become quite an NFL fan since I, I moved to the States, and it's a long story. You can ask me about it sometime. Um, and yeah, I had a really tough day on Sunday because I was going for both the Lions and the Redskins and they were playing each other, and yeah, anyway. Um, so, but what if I really, I really, really, really hoped to become an NFL linebacker? Hmm, yeah, I could spend my every waking moment wanting to do this, working towards this, doing what it takes to try to become that, but for any number of pretty obvious reasons, right, it ain't gonna happen. Hmm, okay, so that's a crazy false hope. And I would expect that if I were trying to base my life on that, I would have good friends around me who would say, uh, no, stop that, okay, don't be stupid, stop wasting your life pursuing a ridiculous fantasy that is not a real hope at all. Well, there are plenty of folks who think that the Christian hope is no more real than if I hope to become an NFL linebacker, and that trying to live in the light of our hope is as baseless and as stupid as that. 
Now, we are utterly sure that the folks who think that are wrong, but how do we know? How do we know that the hope we have is a real hope, not a false hope? How do we know that the promises we cling to for the eschatological future, promises of a new heavens and a new earth, promises of an end to sin and death and disease and distress and injustice and war and violence in word and deed and corruption, how do we know? that this is a real hope and not a delusion, a fantasy, because you look around at the world right now and the state of things, and it sure doesn't look like anything of that could become a real reality. Well, the foundational answer to that is God is to be trusted. He is faithful. What he has promised in his word, he will do. But as if that weren't enough, God has given us more than this. We can trust what he's going to do in the future because of what he has already done in the past, and especially what he's done in Jesus. And even more especially, we can trust that God will do what he promises at the eschaton because of Jesus' resurrection. Almost everything we can say about the eschatological future, we can say because Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. And we can trust in what God will do then because the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee and the sneak peek of what is coming. As I said earlier, Jesus' resurrection is one of those instances where the eschatological future has burst into our time and our space. For those Jews around Jesus' time who believed in the coming resurrection, like Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees, yes, the Pharisees got some things right, this is one of them, Um, the resurrection was going to be the big eschatological event, right? Um, For those kind of folks, uh, what they anticipated was the resurrection would be the sign of the end. What What the New Testament believes and what we believe on the basis of that is that in Jesus, in so many ways, but especially in his resurrection, God's eschatological future has broken into our ordinary time and space, our here and now. The resurrection of Jesus was God's way of saying, see, this is what is coming. What we see in the resurrected Jesus is like a lightning flash from the future bursting into now. It illuminates everything that we can say about what is to come. We tend to have such a tame take-it-for-granted attitude towards the resurrection of Jesus. It's one of those aspects of what we believe. It's kind of become like theological wallpaper, right? It's always there in the background, and we're really glad it's there, but we don't exactly get blown away by it. I think we sometimes look at Jesus' resurrection and say, oh, yeah, yay, Jesus was dead, now he's alive. How cool for Jesus, yay. Or, oh, my sins are now fully done away with, and I'm right with God. Thank you, Jesus. And that's about as far as we often get. Jesus' resurrection isn't just about something great happening to Jesus, and it isn't even just about saving us as such, amazing and wonderful as both of those things are. That is far too small, right? In the resurrected, transformed, glorified body of Jesus, you see your future. As Paul says, we will have a glorified body just like his. But even more than this, in the resurrected, transformed, glorified body of Jesus, you see the future for the whole of God's creation. Because it isn't just human beings that matter to God. From the beginning, we see that matter matters to God. From the beginning, God delighted in the whole of his creation. In the middle of that story, we see that matter matters so much to God that in the second person of the Trinity, he takes on physical matter that he's made. In the incarnation, he enters fully into this material world and he wrenches it around from the inside. And Paul reminds us that the reconciliation and restoration one on the cross is for all of God's creation. 
And the resurrection of Jesus shows us that God has a glorious future for the whole of creation. Matter matters so much to God that in the glorified body of the risen Jesus, we see the renewed, transformed, glorious future, not just for us, but for everything that God has made. What happened to Jesus on the third day is this big, folks. What the Father has done for Jesus the Son in raising him from the dead in the power of the Spirit, that is a sneak preview of what the triune God is going to do for you, for me, for the whole of creation at the eschaton. There's so much more that we could unpack from this. Every detail of the resurrection of Jesus is giving us a window into what God will do and even how God will do it when the eschaton comes. So, remember the weirdness, right, of Jesus' resurrection body, for example? How the disciples sometimes recognise him, sometimes don't, how he eats and he also walks through walls and so on. Um, These aren't just details that lend vividness to the story, right? These kinds of things help us to realise that in the eschaton there is going to be both continuity and discontinuity between how things are now and how things are going to be then. God is not just going to scrap everything and start again from scratch with us or his creation. This is the same Jesus who was put to death on Friday, who was raised on Sunday. But he's still different, transformed. Jesus' resurrection body is the sneak peek of how God is going to renew and restore and transform and glorify us and all that he's made. Continuity, yes. Discontinuity, too. And here's something else. Jesus' resurrection is an almighty, miraculous, inbreaking, transforming act of God. There is nothing automatic about the resurrection. And in a weird way, that's a kind of hard one for us sometimes because we know what happens on Resurrection Sunday, right? So we can tend to think, oh yeah, there's something sort of automatic about it, at least for Jesus. Yeah, he's dead, but it's okay because he's going to get raised. Yeah, folks. But first, Jesus is dead, dead, dead. Okay, humanly speaking, this is the end for Jesus. What happens next is an almighty rupture in the natural order of things. It's this sneak peek of how God's future will come about. Jesus' death and resurrection remind us that God's future is not simply going to emerge organically from how things are now. This is not some sort of natural possibility latent in the order of things. Things will not just keep going and suddenly we'll think, oh, wow, things have become kind of good now. Oh, look, we've just kind of emerged into the eschaton. No, no way. Because of what we see in the resurrection of Jesus, dead and made alive again, we know that what the Old Testament hints at is true. That when the day of the Lord comes, when Jesus returns in glory to make all things new, that too will be this almighty, inbreaking, transforming act of God that changes everything. What we see in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a preview of how the eschaton will happen. And just one more thing to draw out of this. It's obvious, but it's really important. If the eschaton is like this, and Jesus' resurrection indicates it will be, then guess what, folks? We do not bring it about. We do not bring in the kingdom by our agendas, not even our most kingdom-oriented agendas. As N.T. Wright says, we build for the coming kingdom. We do not build the kingdom. That is God's job. And also, nothing that human beings can do can be the catalyst for the eschaton, as if God has somehow left it over to us to flip the switch or hit the trigger, uh, to, you know, to, 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 catalyst, to catalyze the coming again of Jesus. Um, no way, folks, way above our pay grade. Human beings do not make the eschaton happen, not by our agendas, not by our actions. 
Just like the resurrection, the eschaton will be this almighty, decisive, in-breaking, transforming act of the triune God on his timing for his reasons. Do you begin to see what I mean then when I said that almost everything we can say about the eschatological future, we can say because Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. When you see Jesus' resurrection for what it is, not just some great event for Jesus, not even just part of saving us from our sins, but as this great lightning flash from the future bursting into our ordinary space and time, then you see that it illuminates so much of what God is going to do at the end of time. It's the guarantee, it is the sneak peek of what is coming that gives us some things that we really truly can say about what God will do and even how God will do it. Because he has done it. The resurrection of Jesus is the coming future for us and the whole of creation in one explosive nutshell. So, all of this gets, us, uh, gets at one aspect of what I said earlier about how eschatology isn't just future. The future has already broken into the present. What about that other aspect of how eschatology is not just future? That it's a whole dimension of the life of faith now. I mean, all this stuff about how in Jesus' resurrection we see our future, we see the future for the whole of creation and so on, that's all very well for then. But what about how to live now, in this in-between time, right? Um, when, yes, all of this is true, but there is still so much that is still so very broken and we still have to cry out, how long, O Lord? Well, there are a bazillion implications uh, which we can draw out from what all of this means about how to live towards the coming kingdom of God now. But I want to emphasize just a couple, uh, a couple of thoughts very much related to registering the importance of what the risen body of Jesus might mean for us right here, right now. Remember what I said earlier, that whether you think about it consciously or not, uh, what, what do you think God is going to do in the eschatological future? What do you think the Christian hope is for you, for me, for the whole of creation? That is going to be shaping your life and your actions now in any number of ways. What you do and don't think about what happened to Jesus on that third day is going to have a huge impact on absolutely everything. Not just about the future, about life now. And I'm going to illustrate that by flipping some things around a bit and showing how some very bad, very mixed up, very disconnected thinking related to the resurrection of Jesus gets us into trouble in how we live now. There are some folks, including some self-identifying Christian folks, who find it just too hard, right, to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Maybe just his message lives on. Uh, maybe he has some sort of ongoing, sort of non-bodily spiritual life or something. And incidentally, there are also far, far, far too many versions of Christianity that pay lip service to the resurrection of Jesus, his bodily resurrection, but then kind of lead us to believe that our ultimate destiny is to be disembodied souls in a non-physical heaven. How many hymns and songs and devotionals have you come across, right, uh, which talk about Jesus saving our souls and how our souls will be with Jesus in the clouds, far away from this miserable world for eternity? Um, no, okay, just no. We believe in the bodily resurrection. But here's the thing, if you have it in your head in some way, for whatever reason, that bodies don't really matter so much to God eternally, and that our hope for the eschatological future is to kind of get rid of our bodies, then you will also be convinced that your bodies don't matter so much to God now either. Your default will be to believe that what really matters to God, right, is your soul, your inner essence, your mind, or whatever. 
If you devalue the body in eschatology, chances are that consciously or subconsciously, that's going to affect how you think about the worth of the body now. And that is going to affect how you act now in relation to your body, in relation to other people's bodies. In subtle and not so subtle ways, we can find ourselves denigrating our bodies, not caring for or honouring our bodies or other people's as we should. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit now, and by the Holy Spirit, they will be transformed into our glorious resurrection bodies at the eschaton. Spend some time uh, later on today thinking hard about what that means for your attitude to your body and other people's bodies right now. Remembering that not just your soul, but your body has eternal value to God. Glorify God by how you treat your bodies, how you regard other people's bodies, because he has a glorious future for them. And then, if you think that Jesus wasn't raised bodily from the dead, or if you think he was, but your functional eschatology is still that you're going to be a floaty, disembodied soul in some non-physical heaven for all eternity, then you are also going to think very differently about God's good creation now. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ say this world has no future. It'll be utterly destroyed. But in spite of appearances, not even a text like 2 Peter 3, check it out sometime, not even a text like 2 Peter 3 means that. The full biblical hope for, is for this world renewed and transformed. Even so, some of those brothers and sisters in Christ think that because God has just destined this world for the scrap heap, at best we don't need to care too much about all that so-called environmental stuff now. And at worst, the more we exploit and desecrate the planet, the better, because that will hasten the day with the Lord when he'll come and finish the job. Seriously. Now, that's an extreme, right? But it serves as a very powerful reminder that what you hope for, if you can call that a hope, in the eschatological future, that shapes your thinking and your actions now. Instead, we are called to live in such a way that we exercise our God-given role towards God's good earth in a way that reflects God's good purposes for what he has made. The triune God loved this world into being, and the scriptures are clear. Not only does he continue to care for it, he has a glorious future for it, and he's even given us a sneak preview of that in the resurrection body of Jesus. If we believe that um, if the eschatological hope for the world and the whole of creation looks like that, looks like what we see in the transformed, glorified body of Jesus, then that should shape our discerning and our actions right here, right now. If you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, then you have a glimpse of the glorious eschatological future for us and for the whole of creation. So let's get out there, every single one of us, and live now in the light of the fullness of the hope that we've been given. You can trust it. This is not a false hope. This is not a fantasy. You can have full assurance that what God has promised God will do because Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead. Thanks be to God now and to all eternity. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, keep us trusting, keep us hoping, keep on shaping us, keep on guiding us so that we can live more and more fully into the hope to which Jesus' resurrection calls us, the coming kingdom, even already in this not yet time, so that we can live more and more to the praise and the glory of the Father. Amen. Sing the doxology with me. Praise God from.